Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. My friends, I am absolutely pumped to have you on today's episode of The New Wave Entrepreneur. And guess what? Today we're doing something that's really one of my favorite things to do personally. We are doing a book review. And I kind of chuckle when I say that because uh, my wife is always teasing me that I read super boring books. And I often do read some some pretty some pretty boring ones. But you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll say boring books are the ones that have all the things in them that people don't want to read and therefore people miss. And one of those books, well, a whole series of books was written by Ray Dalio. And um, he wrote a book back in 2018 called Principles. This was a foundational book for me in my understanding of how to deal with challenges, how to deal with life. And over the course of these last three years, three, four years, he's written several books. His most recent book is called uh, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, specifically Why Nations Succeed and Fail. And I have been wanting to read this book for a while because I'm very fascinated with the concept of how the world operates from multiple different levels, from my personal level, which is kind of more microeconomic, how I'm handling my money, how my community is handling our resources, how we're growing and developing as people and small businesses. And then, of course, from the macro level, how companies are, how, how large companies are moving, how large countries are moving and what the overall shifts are, you know, in long, long periods of time. And so that is what Ray's new book is about. And I took a small group of my clients. These are all clients in my NWP program, New Wave Protocol. And we basically assigned this book to ourselves as a group homework to read. And now we're doing a book review for this. We're actually going to meet together to talk about the important points that we learned, the lessons that we gleaned from it. And I'm actually bringing you in on this experience. You know, I have a small group of clients that I work with on a real deep level. And we go for six months at a time. We do multiple different experiences together. We work together through financial stuff, crypto stuff, specifically learning about Web3 and blockchain. And then we also do personal sovereignty related activities. So we'll do a fight camp together in February coming up here. We're going to do tactical firearms training together. We're going to do emergency first aid. And then later as the year progresses, we're also going to be doing some spiritual healing, some deep shamanic work together. And in between those in-person meetings, we also have sessions that we do via Zoom. We do workshops every month on different topics. So it's a whole community of people that you know are just like-minded and working towards really riding this new wave, really understanding how sovereignty affects them and their lives. And so that's who this group is comprised of. Um, so that's who you're going to hear on this call as you hear other voices besides my own. And if you are curious about this program, make sure you go to newwaveentrepreneur.com. There's a link on that website to check out the New Wave Protocol. Now, we're not open for spots right now, but we will be sometime in the spring. So you can leave your application there. And if you're a good fit, uh, I'll get back to you. And really, that's all that I got to say today. Uh, enjoy this episode. One thing you should check out if you haven't already is my Substack. Okay, Substack is a platform where I'm adding my podcasts, my blogs, other essays, important things, and I'm putting them all there. And there's also a premium layer to this as well where I'm putting unlisted podcasts, we're doing merch drops, I'm releasing courses inside of the premium edition of 
uh, Substack and all these other things, ways to interact with not only me, but a community that we're building as well. And this is comprised of people who truly understand that this new wave is not just coming, but already here and want to prepare for it and learn how to surf. So that's what we're doing. Uh, you can check out newwaveentrepreneur.com. The very first link on that website, um, it's a very simple website, it goes to the Substack. So make sure you check that site out. Make sure you subscribe on Substack and then you sign up to be a premium member. That's where you're going to get the best stuff as we've seen over the past a couple of weeks, you know, social media is not our own. As you know, my IG got kind of fucked up. I got shadow banned. Um, I'm still like the profile is still up there, but I guess they didn't like the fact that I'm spitting the truth. And that just is what it is. So anyway, now we're going to talk about why some nations succeed and why some fail. And that's all thanks to Mr. Dalio here. Enjoy today's episode and I'll catch you on the other side. Today would be a great opportunity just to, to talk about everything that's been happening uh, just recently in the economy. We know that um, inflation numbers just came out at the beginning of the week, I believe, or I think it was Friday inflation numbers came out. And then Tuesday, uh, they, were, they had some additional numbers. So I think that's today. Um, we saw that the consumer price index, the CPI, they have it at 6.8, which basically just means that inflation's around seven. And apparently that is you know, that's that's the highest it's been in 39 years. And I also think that that's probably lower than what's actually happening in how it's actually playing out when we're going to the store and we're buying things. I was just curious, what have you guys noticed just from your, as a consumer, what have you noticed about the, the price of things? I just, I want to hear from your personal experiences. We were going to build a house, uh, but it was a hundred K more. The builder was saying it would be like, uh, almost a hundred K more than it would, it would have been like a year ago. So for, and just for no, for no reason, except that price of lumber, you know, steel, really everything, you know, construction. Supply, yeah, yeah. They say it's supply chain chains, but you know, that probably has part to do with it, but I don't think it's the full picture. Well, what state are you guys in? Are you guys in Florida? Uh, Kansas. Oh, Kansas. Oh, wow. Even in Kansas. Yeah. Yep. A little um, bit west of Kansas City. Dan, you're in construction. Did you want to give any commentary on on that specifically? Uh, yeah, the uh, the supply chain issue has become an absolute nightmare for us. Securing materials. I mean, just getting anything, you know, stuff that we used to be able to get in a week is now taking months. And God forbid, you know, an architect says, I want some fancy stuff from Italy. It's like, forget it. You're not, it's not happening. <laughs> Wow. So uh, yeah, it's it's wreaked havoc on on the business. Is it, is it artificial? Are these problems artificial or, or are they real or are they a little bit of both? Uh, it's a little bit of both. I mean, we've we've had uh, we've had vendors who were preaching that they've got stuff in stock. Oh, buy from us, buy from us, buy from us, and then you know. A week later, they're like, oh, due to the increased demand, we're raising our price. It's like, come on, man. Like, well, you just told us you were in stock. What are you doing? And then you got other guys who just was like, listen, man, uh, I, I just, I can't, I can't get anything for you. You're, it, you, you either got to wait or you got to go somewhere else. And which is a lot, you know, because they don't want to lose that business. But, you know, it, it's both. It's both. It's, it goes both ways. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a real opportunity to, price gouge in some cases. And it's also just the reality that if, if the materials aren't there, you know, I, I know we were having an issue just earlier in the year where we, for the DVDs that we manufacture, we, we physically ran out of plastic. 
which is like, I've never experienced that before. They're like, we can't print them because we don't have any plastic. I'm like, I'm sorry, I still don't understand you. What do you mean? You don't have the plastic balls to melt down to make a DVD? I'm still not understanding you. I don't get it because we just think of supply chain. We don't really think about supply chains because they're just there. In our country, we're used to them just being there. You know, Who else is running into things in the real world that are showing kind of some of the wear and tear on the economic, the economics that are going on? Yeah, I mean, um, what's up, guys? I, um, I've been going through supply issues with a snack business because we have a, a snack box that has 20 different snacks in it from 20 different manufacturers. And over this past year, I've seen at least 50% of those snacks increase anywhere from 20% to some over 100%. Some have completely gone obsolete where they're not making those snacks anymore. So we've had to actually just mix and match whatever's available, different flavors, and even say goodbye to some brands. I I don't know if you guys are familiar with uh, this giant jerky company, Chomps. They make Mm -hmm. some of the best uh, organic jerky in America. And they recently sent us an email last week saying, we are temporarily suspending all website orders due to supply shortage issues because we can't keep up with the demand. Well, that's that's affecting all companies that order wholesale, including me. And because of that, we had to go with a different jerky company because if you buy that jerky on Amazon or wherever it's available, it's way overpriced compared to our budget. So those are the issues I've been experiencing. And just to give you an idea on cardboard box costs from China importing into the US, we're looking at anywhere from $1.50 which would normally cost from manufacturing to door arrival in the US, it's over $3 now. Wow. So we've double. experienced a 100% increase just, <sighs> just to deal with that. And you're looking at three to four months arrival time for sea shipping due to the, yeah. the cargo thing. Yeah. So yeah. that's just a brief synopsis of the stuff that I've been experiencing. Luckily, we pulled through, you know, we put our heads together and said, uh, put a little uh, disclaimer underneath the marketing photos that says, in some instances, due to supply constraints, snacks may vary depending on availability. And I feel like that could be used for multiple businesses. I think people understand at this point if you know, you've know you been in the world for the last year. So luckily we haven't received backlash from customers. People are pretty understanding, but yeah, it's it's been challenging. I totally relate to that. And I also have seen big differences in shipping prices. You know, We'll send out uh, media mail, which are just books and DVDs. And it costs yeah. us now almost $8 to send one paperback book out, which doesn't include the price of the book. You know, and so it, a year and a half ago, 18 months ago, it would have cost us three and change, three to four dollars. I was going to say three dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Three dollars media mail. Three, we'd be like three fifty six or something like that. Um, and now it's almost eight. Um, and so that actually it's actually more expensive to send the book than to actually print it, which is crazy. And that's just the that's just on the mail, you know, also, as well as you were saying, kind of like in the ports, I have several clients who are getting things shipped in and their merch is just being held like for instance, in Long Beach or wherever port they're coming in for three months. I had someone who ordered their um, their inventory for Black Friday in this, this Black Friday weekend in June, I want to say, and they just barely got it in time and they had to pay all these surcharges. It's nuts. It's nuts. What about, um, what about in the grocery store, the gas tank? What are you guys noticing there? I was going to say gas down here, San Diego is like... Um... 
easily over 450. Really? Oh yeah. Really? For, for yeah. unleaded regular? Yeah, 87. No. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck. I mean, in certain stations, you're at like close to five. So everyone's Fuck. just piling up at, at Costco. I mean, that's, that's like not the, good. That's like the new the new trend right there. Holy shit. And you know, not to whatever i have a tesla so i don't i don't look at it anymore like i just drive right past it you know but but that's a that's an economic uh indicator Mm -hmm. and holy fuck for okay well that san diego is pretty expensive who else i mean what's it look like in kansas what's like in new york texas give us some feedback manitoba like what's the what's the contentious holy shit i also have a tesla so i don't know (laughs) i haven't been paying attention (laughs) bastards yeah bastards Uh, any non-tesla drivers in new york it's about three and some change right now it'll probably go up soon Three and change. What's it looking like in Texas? Uh, Austin, I moved here December 1st, 2020, took a picture of a gas sign. It was $1.75. No. Now <laughs> it's no joke. I'm, I'm going to frame it. And yeah. now it's three something. And I haven't seen anything below $3 in 10 years. So I don't know how it was 175. That's that seems I would rather be buying gas than crypto at that point. I'd just be buying gallons and gallons of gas. It's the no, it was nice. cheapest token was on nice. the market. Uh, Matt, what are we looking like in Florida? What's gas like in Florida? I don't know if you're by the computer right now. You can chime in when you actually get back. Um, what about what about food prices? Have you noticed uh, any additional? Uh, do you feel like your 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 receipts after you go grocery shopping are more expensive or less than when you than before? Maybe the past eighteen months. Definitely more. 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 Oh yeah, quite a bit more. I would say it's it seems it does seem like that. It does seem like that. It seems like um, sometimes it's hard to tell because everything is relatively subjective and you buy different stuff every time. But for the most part, I don't know if you guys have had this experience lately, but I will go to the store and I'll, I'll have maybe four bags and I'll walk out and it's like 200 bucks or something. And I'm just like, what did I even buy? You know, before yeah. it used to be, if you bought maybe some supplements at the store or some meat, it was going to be more expensive because those are like premium things. Or like you bought some toy, like hair conditioner or something like that was going to be $15 right there or whatever. But now just like regular stuff combined, you know, is more expensive. And if, if the CPI is, you know, correct, consumer price index, if they're going to say it's 6.87%, again, I think they're probably rounding down, it's probably closer to 10%, maybe even higher. Then we know that those prices are going up. So we're not imagining it, you know, to your point, uh, Jared, talking about buying a house. It's interesting that uh, my parents sold their house in California a few, like last year, and they'd had it for five years. So not too long. And it had already gone up like, I don't know, 150,000, almost $200,000 in value in the five years that they had it. And they were like very psyched about it, which is great. And they were able to sell it quickly because the housing market is crazy right now. They were able to sell it. But when I saw that, what to me, that what that looked like is the dollar is just weaker now. The fact that it's $200,000 more than it was before, isn't that the house is that much more valuable? Because how can you create that much value in five years? It's that it just takes more money to get the same or to get less. And um, it's just interesting because when you look at it from that perspective, it doesn't feel as good. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't feel as good. And I mean, that's actually a good segue for talking about this book. This is a very interesting book. Just, you know, before I, I start talking, what was your, and even if you didn't read the whole thing, that's fine. Cause I know it's long, you know, I, I listened to it once, one time through, I'm going to go back and I'm going to go, uh, you, you know, read it more closely. And I'm going to make some, um, some notes on it and come back again, but I don't know what, in, in, in a phrase or even in a word, what is your sentiment about this book? How did it ring true to you? Did, how did it feel? Um, just want to get your overall feedback, you know, whoever wants to go. Uh, I'll, I'll go. Um, yeah. I, so I just, I very basically, I just skimmed through it. Um, yeah. And then I, I watched like a YouTube review. 
So I was aware of Ray Dalio probably like right when I started investing. And so I heard him talking about inflation and I'm like, hmm, okay, this guy, this guy's on to something. And that essentially segued me right into crypto because <laughs> what he's talking about is basically like, I realized that our situation is is literally that. I mean, he he lays out the entire thing just from a macro perspective. Um, and and it's funny because he used to be kind of a non-believer in crypto, right? Like, I don't know if you watch yeah, the early videos where he was just like, ah, I don't think so. And now it's like, well, he has the whole vision of where this thing is going. And then this 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 brand new mechanism came in. And yeah, uh, I just think that it's basically kind of like it it combines perfectly with this crypto and this blockchain stuff. So I thought from what he was talking about, you know, it's just now it's coming to the mainstream. Luckily, like if there's somebody who's talking about it. So I couldn't agree more with it from my perspective. Anybody else want to add anything to what Neil just said? I mean, I, I read it kind of in light of listening to um, a book that you had recommended, Sovereign Individual. Yeah. And I feel like um, there's definitely a uh, a connection of like philosophical thought and it just like the practice and and the the uh, is is a little varied, right? Because of their like um, their their studies and and experiences. And so there's like this balance of like doomsday and opportunity. Yes. Um, for for depending on like what 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 side of perspective you you fall on or or yeah. or. And so um, it just kind of had that uh, looming dark cloud as I was kind of just reading through the through the material, but feeling like this is also equally empowering because of the this the the knowledge that I am uh, and that we are seeking right now and looking to like uh, just apply. And so it just kind of um, gases gases me up more to um, yeah play. I like that doomsday versus opportunity. You know, that's accurate. What were you going to say, Nick? I think for me, it's I'm, I'm a little bit more than halfway through it right now. And it's it's been a kind of an emotional roller coaster for me. I'm really glad that this book came into my life and that I'm reading it. But I've had instances where I I commend Dalio for saying certain things. And then I wish that he would elaborate more on other things. Like for example, when he when he brings up the media and he says something like nowadays, according to the polls from his research, about 17% of people have trust in the media. Whereas like back in the 70s, you had a little over 70% of the people trusted the media. And he he's highlighting that there is a severe problem with the media and the way that information is being shared and this behind the scenes way of condemning people who tell the truth. And I totally see that. I mean, I've, I've done some background research on that on my own and just seen the way that censorship has impacted all of us just this last year. So that's one of the things that I really admire him for bringing up in the book. But then if you kind of go back towards the beginning of the book, he talks about how the main factors that create wealth are inventing and education, or you could say innovation. And so he, he highlights the importance of education and inventing. But from my personal experience, in my opinion, they didn't teach me how to invent in schools or how to innovate. They basically taught me how to get a job and just get a paycheck in the world. And I actually didn't even know what an entrepreneur was until I graduated college. The word just was never used. 
in schools. So my question is, if inventing and education is what produces wealth and wealth is a contribution to a healthy society, then why isn't that taught in schools? And so I wish that he would have highlighted a little bit more about the schooling system and the education system and how it's controlled and manipulated to perhaps keep the public in check in a certain way. And this is another thing that I've been exploring recently about the educational system, because I don't really feel like I started learning until after I got out of school. Right. Big light bulb moment there. Seriously. I think that part of that, and I felt the same. And I think that part of it is because there has to be a certain element of learning that is intentional. And obviously you go to school and you want to please your teachers and your parents. And there's some self-gratification as well. But when you truly choose to take something on for yourself, that level of commitment from the internal you know, drive creates so much more stickiness to whatever it is that you're wanting to learn because you create meaning around it. Whereas if you're forced into school, you don't have a choice. You're just doing it to check a box. That's been my experience. Even if you're good at it, you know, even if you're good at it. Um, And with regards to your thoughts on Dalio being able to, you know, expand on some things, I tend to agree with you. And one of the things I think was that, you know, in this book, I think he spent too much time um, talking about the historical context and not enough time digging into the solutions for present and now. And I understand why there needs to be that context there. But, you know, he he specifically goes into it's like he's like, no, I'm not going to talk. I'm not I'm not going to go too deep into the past you know, and then he proceeds to go to the 1300s and work his way up through like feudal capitalism. I'm like, dude, you know, <laughs> and I love how I love how after the intro of the book, he goes, if you're listening to it on Audible, he goes, well, that's all the time I have. Here's the narrator. <laughs> due, to, due to time constraints. Yeah, due to time constraints. And I guess you're Ray Dalio. You don't have to do the read the book, but I'm just like, I was getting used to his voice. and I'm getting used to it. Chapter like, one, right, that's it. It's all the time I got, guys. I'm a billionaire. So I read chapter one. That's the best I can expect. You can expect like, like for, and I like, I like how he casually drops these bombs and then he doesn't elaborate on them. I'm like, wait, wait, what did you just say? Like, he's like, you know, based on my numbers, there are 18 factors that lead to uh, civil, civil breakdown. And, you know, if you have between zero or one and six factors, you know, you have a 17% chance of having a war. And if you have more than six factors, uh, you have like about a 30% chance of having a civil war. And right now the U.S. has 12 of those factors, but let's move on to the British, you know, history of the world. And I'm just like, wait, you just said that the U.S. has a 30% chance of having a hot or a cold civil war. Are you going to come back to that? Are you going to, you know, <laughs> and he does come back to it a little bit, but it's like, he just casually drops this bomb and you're like, you know, so. Wow. There's a massive amount of info in that book. It's it's so not something that I, I think it's something I'll have to reread a couple of times. I mean, yeah. it's there's definitely a lot of hidden gems in there, yeah. but you can get lost in the history of it. His his first book what is one of my most annotated books ever. You know, uh, his principles book was one of my most annotated ever. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think about some of the some of the points that he was making with regards to the gold standard. I've been talking about this a lot on the show now, and I think it's super interesting. And that's one of the things that's really, this has driven into me even more through reading this book. You know, I'd known about the Federal Reserve and about um, the idea of um, uh, just creating, of how money is created and, um, and, and how the gold standard was pegging the dollar to a certain amount of gold and how we got off of that. Um, I guess I just want to know, like your thoughts, do you think that there 
there is a situation in which we can be printing money and not run into this rapid and, and rampant inflation? Do you think that there's something, anything we could have done? Uh, I think, uh, I, I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to really say. I mean, it, if something was kind of keeping the money in check and keeping it from being printed, I mean, obviously anytime you leave something unsupervised or unattended, people are going to take advantage of something. So I don't think there was really any way of not expecting this to happen after coming off the gold standard. But uh, I don't know, I guess I, I wasn't, I wasn't there back then. So I don't know what the the decision or the, or the logic was when uh, they had those talks. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, one question to ask, which I'm curious about, you know, what you guys think that one, one way of thinking of this is that like this system is so fucked up and it's run by evil people. And the other is that, you know, this system is created in a way where even people with good intentions can't actually change it because it's a systemic issue. And what, you know, full stop, what do you guys think about that, about that dichotomy? I agree. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If we, you know, denominate our, you know, life in something like the dollar and everyone aspires to have dollars all over the world, but they're printing, you know, an infinite supply of it. I don't think it's going to last. Like it's eventually eventually going to crumble. And I can see something like, like Bitcoin, you know, being what people denominate their life in, in the future. It's like, you know, how many, you know, Ethereum, you know, are needed to, to have my Bitcoin or whatever it may be. Um, because, you know, you can't print more of it. It's already, it's on the ledger. It's already the white paper is already there, so you can't change it. So I feel like that's a better um, representation of value than the dollar. You know what I mean? You were going to say something, Nick? I think that we've seen it where when somebody with any sort of a name speaks up against the general narrative, you could use Dr. Merkola as an example. They're just immediately shut down. Not only are they censored and banned from major platforms that people use to get their information from, but they're condemned. Their websites are deleted. Anything that proposes a different way of doing things just gets absolutely wrecked. And that's a huge, I mean, Dalio talks about that in the, in the book. He says that if good people speak out to try to change it, they're destroyed by the media because other people will use the media to manipulate it. And that's, I'm glad that he says that it, it's happening a lot. I've seen so many Instagram accounts and YouTube channels get absolutely deleted hundred percent. A lot of us have already moved over to Telegram. As far as the money printing issue goes, I understand why they do it. It makes sense. But at the same time, you look at all the hidden corruption behind that, the unemployment system, people taking advantage of the unemployment system, just siphoning tons of money, money going to people that don't need it and not going to the people who who really do need it. The people who have, in California, it was wild. You know, I don't know if anyone experienced it in California, but, you know, people with less resources or, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, less intelligence, were trying to call up the unemployment offices and they were on hold for hours, whereas more tech savvy people could go online and find loopholes and just get money wired to their accounts. And it was a real thing. And so much money was wasted doing that. So you, you think about how much of this money printing, well, where did it all go? And where did all our tax money go that we paid to? Yeah, yeah it, just gets, it just gets eaten in the machine. I mean, not to mention the fact that they sent out billions of dollars to dead people last year because they don't even have an accurate record keeping <laughs> system, you know? And it's like, 
how do, how do we expect to stay at the top of the economic heap when we can't even adequately distribute a few thousand dollars to our citizens? That to me blows my mind. We don't deserve to be called the top. And I, you could say, well, it's, there's 330 million people and how, you know, how, how it's such a big com- country. It is. And we're not going to last long if we can't adequately reach everyone in this country, you know, um, especially in a time of crisis. Like I didn't feel, did you guys feel taken care of by the government during this time? I didn't, you know, I didn't, you know, another thing to think about too, which I've been thinking about more reviewing kind of my, my adolescence just through looking at this book is thinking about the 2008 crash and Neil, I'm not sure how it was, you know, above the great, the great wall up there. But um, when the 2008 housing crash was happening, you know, I was in uh, high school and we also had to, we also had to, we had our house foreclosed on. And so I was like part of that experience. And now looking back on it, I kind of realized really fully the scope of what happened there. And it's pretty simple. It's that, um, you know, there, the banks got super greedy because they lent out a lot of money to people that shouldn't have gotten mortgages. They call these subprime mortgages, which just means that it's a bunch of mortgages that aren't really with the best candidates, which I feel bad that they called my mom subprime. But if you think about it, really, at that time, you know, she was a single mother. She wasn't making that much money. I thought it was amazing that she was able to even get a mortgage on a house. I'm like, how can you afford this? This is a, this is awesome. But, you know, eventually it was like, oh, it caught up with her and it caught up with a lot of people in my neighborhood. During that time when we were living in, in Tampa at that time, man, that whole that whole neighborhood went to like foreclosure or back to the bank because um, they were building houses so quick in the early 2000s. I, I remember we would drive by and every single week there were new houses popping up. Everybody and their mom had a new house being built. You know, it was like, you know, people who had just been living in apartments were now able to get full four or five bedroom houses. And we're like, man, this boom is awesome. And then as things changed, obviously people couldn't afford them. The economy shifted. And so essentially, you know, your, your number gets called where you can no longer afford the house. And of course the bank takes the house back. But the problem is that you haven't been paying your mortgage. So the bank has all this money loaned out, you know, and we were talking about fractional reserve banking. When the bank loans out a dollar of your money there, or when they, when they, accept a dollar of your money, they're allowed to loan out $10. It's the world's greatest Ponzi scheme where they don't have to have the money in the bank to loan it out. And then they have all this money that's supposed to be coming in on the books. But if you don't pay all that, all their, their paper money goes up in smoke. It's like unrealized gains for them. It's like, we're expected to be getting in a billion dollars this month, but most people aren't paying. So what do we do? Now we're in a, now we're in a situation where people can't pay their mortgages and banks can't fulfill their promises because they're not getting the money in that they thought they were going to get because they loaned all the people who shouldn't have gotten loans. So what does the government do? Well, just my opinion. And sure, I don't know fucking anything. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just a, a dumb citizen, but my guess would be maybe if it's mostly the people who are having trouble paying the mortgages, you should give the money to the people to pay the mortgages and they can pay the bank. Now they did give us little stimulus checks for a few thousand dollars, maybe twice, maybe twice, once, maybe twice. But what they did was they bailed out all the banks to make the banks whole. Okay. So they made the banks whole and then the banks still took the houses back. (laughs) So they got double paid. They got, they were made whole then they either took the houses back or started taking payments again on the houses. And it's like, you guys just double won this game. And the people who couldn't afford that their houses were still out in the street. And so that to me shows what the government does when there are real crunches, when they have to choose between people or bank, people or, you know, or, 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 you know, big business, they choose big business. 
And I think that's happened. It's going to happen even more now as inflation continues to rise. I think uh, something similar is happening right now. The student debt bubble. Uh, you got all these uh, people. I think it's actually, it might even be worse because you got people taking out loans to go get their undergrad mm. and get out of college. They realize I can't get a job because whatever I went to school for, just there's just nothing out there. So they double down, they go get their master's, take out another loan, get out, still can't find a job. So now they're in a worse position. So yeah, it just keeps getting more and more. I got, I get, bank notices every day, like go back to college. And I'm like, no, I'm not taking a loan from you. What are you not? I'd rather sell my soul to the devil. What is wrong with you? Like, Don't you want to go back to school? Yeah. I'm like, no. <laughs> so I can get no job and owe you for the rest of my life. Exactly. Or, or just yeah. a job that's not even worth that money. You just can't even make the payments. Right. I mean, it, it, same thing with the houses. About this. Yeah. It, same thing with the houses. Neil, we've been talking about this too. It's like, I, well, what are your thoughts on that? Because you're in school right now and you're kind of like, you're in a transitional space. Yeah, like he's, Dan's legitimately talking about my situation right now. Um, so I took out a loan for university, uh, for architecture school. So I'm expecting to pay somewhere 30000 30, to $40,000 Canadian uh, in total at the end with no guarantee, right, of jobs. And man, the architecture industry it is savage. Uh, <laughs> you know, you got a bunch of people like wearing black and they got sticks up their butts. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just going to just, I'm not going to be the nice Canadian that everyone expects. I'm just going <laughs> to put it along the line. Like, um, and it, you know, it's a, it's a game of ass kissing, right? Like who can kiss ass the best and you're going to get put into the position that, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be put on essentially. And I, I, I saw it with my own eyes and man, people of marginalized groups, um, a lot of international students that are paying three times the normal amount of tuition coming here and then getting treated like second-class students. I was perturbed. Like, I was just, I was just like, man, what is going on here? And man, grateful that, you know, Daniel popped up and all this is happening and I got to meet all of you guys. So, um, but yeah, like I'm expecting to pay that and uh luckily canada isn't as savage as the us like they do have a little bit more conservative values in terms of giving out loans so we didn't get wrecked as hard in 2008 but we still got we just still we still got slapped like hard like my parents they they're 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 um what's it called their mutual fund just like 40 percent, and it was just like all right it's gone so yeah, if you were in crypto you'd be used to that Forty <laughs> percent. It's a light day. Yeah, <laughs> I'm down eighty percent for the week. Cool. <laughs> buy more. Buy more. If buy more. Buy more. Crypto people are retarded, man. I don't know if I can say that word anymore. They're ridiculous. You know, it's like it's like you know, it's like people would be scared in the regular industry, and now it's like buy, buy, buy. Yeah. Uh, just to add, uh, just to add on to that, um, I was having a conversation with my parents uh, just yesterday, and like we were talking about politics in general, like uh, Democrats, uh, Republicans, liberals, conservatives. I mean, I think we can kind of all come to a consensus where it's like they basically represent the same social economic status group. Like, you know, it's basically, you know, them, the 1% versus basically everybody else. And, you know, and the people that don't understand that, that are caught in the middle, that don't realize that, okay, these two political powers, the two big ones, like even in Canada, the liberals and the conservatives, they, 
they don't move the needle, right? I mean, they're not doing anything to help us. They're just keeping the way, they're just keeping the status quo, you know, keeping the money flowing, keep, keep on unprinting. And like my parents, unfortunately, they, they're so entrenched in the system that they feel they can't even do anything. And it's so sad. They're, these are the most educated people that I like, I'm privy to like, you know, my dad has a PhD. My mom has her master's. She was the first Bangladeshi uh, undergrad at in Manitoba. So these people are super intelligent and they feel powerless. It's like, yeah, so we need, we got work to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We got, we got work to do. And it's interesting too, because um, it just shows you that as, as the world changes, the requirements for being successful in that same environment change, you know? So we were given a set of instructions that were given to our parents and those instructions are now starting to age out. And rather than fight against that, you know, it's better, it's better to learn how the environment's changing to adapt to it. Um, You know, it's the same thing in, in jujitsu, which I'm not going to go, I'm not going to give a whole analogy because I'll just, I'll, I'll go unnecessarily down that road. But the idea is adapt to what you're being given. Don't try to force something that clearly isn't working. And, um, there's nothing wrong with going to college. And, you know, in, in my book, I wrote like, you know, college is dead. And I do think that there's a, I think there's a real value in, in expressing and exploring your own unique interests outside of school. But for someone like, for instance, like my wife, okay, she's in the psychology field. Like she's going to need to go to school to get a degree, to do a certain type of job and a very specific career. But she's also getting work experience before she goes for her master's. And she's also done things outside of that. Lots of traveling. She's doing, she's like, she's an incredible painter. Like she has all these different aspects where she's developing her whole person. And then, especially since she started school a little bit later in life, she's made a conscious choice. And we talked about this uh, just earlier, you know, uh, you know, on this call where it's like, okay, education hits better when you've already had some life experience and you feel like you're learning more when you've already had some exposure to things. You know, if college is just an extension of high school, like high school part two, you don't really get as much out of it. You know, I'm going, I went into college at 18, not much maturity from senior in high school to freshman in college. And so I treated it like that. And I had a good time, a really good time. But if I went back now, like I'm considering going back for a master's at some point, I'd be like, oh, I'm serious about this. You know, I'm really going to do this. Um, so it, it just it hits different. Um, and looking at some notes on the Dalio stuff, I think this is actually a good question. You know, when, when we look at some of the things that the book is talking about, what we're talking about, the changing tide of the world, you know, how do we integrate the lessons from this book and the lessons that we're picking up from being observant? you know, in, in the world, how do we take these lessons and apply them to our lives? Like outside of the philosophical realm, um, uh, Lee, I'd love to hear from you. Learn and invest in crypto. <laughs> Don't be crypto, uh, poster child. What do you tell us what you really feel? And no, I'm just kidding. It's true. It's true. I mean, and I think, I think just learning about learning about the economy in general, I'm not even, I'm not even, uh, uh, downing investing in the, the market as well, like typical equities, which by the way, you know, if we're looking at the companies that are going to do really well, um, they're going to be the ones that are also turning into blockchain companies. We know Facebook's turning into a blockchain company. We know Twitter's turning into a blockchain company. You know, we, if we look at the evolution of Web3, we know it's AI, uh, which is artificial intelligence, AR, which is augmented reality, VR. All these things are continuing to expand and they're going to connect with the metaverse. They're going to connect with our everyday experience of the web. So if we're just talking financial stuff, those would be great things to to consider investing in as we roll forward. And just from a from a stability perspective, 
you know, they would add some stability to the portfolio because they're not going to have as big high or lows as some of these cryptos are going to have. Um, and that can be a good thing too. So just something to think about. What other ways can we adapt the lessons that we're learning through this material and others that we're reading to actively make changes in our life? Like what are we tangibly going to do? Prepare for the worst and uh, hope it doesn't happen. <laughs> Easy to say from Florida. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Be more specific. So like, how would you prepare for Dalio's doomsday? I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's what can I invest in outside of just, you know, if like the U S dollar crashes and, and holds no validity, like you look at like the world war II, the German, um, uh, what the, is the it? Mark. yeah, the Mark. And like what that cost was. So what can I do that's that's like stood the test of time? I can invest in things like gold. I can invest in things like silver. I can, you know, if there's the next potential doomsday is, is you know, like a solar flare of sorts, I can understand that having a, a cold storage wallet, I can still have access to my cryptocurrency. Um, I mean, it's it's preparing for things like holding on to potential assets, um, you know, having a home that you actually own, um, you know, having having stocked up for for these certain things. But yeah, holding on to my assets that are outside of just the the actual dollar. I um, mean, maybe even potentially investing in owning currencies other of other economies um, and what that can do. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea at all. And I think that. One thing that was really hit home for me by reading this book a bit more is the real impact that living in a country who has the global reserve currency, what that does for you. I guess I just didn't really understand before. You know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, mostly in the 90s, and everything was always in dollars. So anything you would buy on the bottom of it, there'd be a, a dollar sign, you know, because it was manufactured somewhere else, but it was sold in dollars. Every transaction that we make, you know, it's like we're equivalenting, we're 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 um, we're finding the equivalent in dollars, you know. And even foreign foreign bodies are always talking about what their currency is worth in dollars, you know. And that's been my reality, and that's just be, been because you know, for all of our lifetimes, the dollar has been the global reserve currency. If it would have been, you know, before that, you know, it would have been the British pound sterling, and before that, it was the Dutch kroner or whatever. And it would have been how many Dutch kroners is this, you know, does this seashell is this seashell worth? But having that global reserve currency, I'm realizing now is such a. Um, it, it used to feel like such a power move because you're like, <laughs> you know, we create money, we are money. The U.S. is U.S. is money. But then I realized, oh, first of all, the only reason we have the global reserve currency mostly is because the first two world wars. We didn't get fucked up by those things, really. We had a, we had some casualties, obviously. Yes, you know, for anyone who's listening, obviously we had casualties. But when you look at Europe, Europe got trashed. Even the winners in Europe got trashed. And we're over here, a continent on our own. They sent all their gold over to our country. We held on to it. Our treasuries got just thick, super. Th- the U.S. Has a, had a thick treasury, you know. And as soon as the as soon as World War II was over, we're like, all right, guys. Well, it looks like everyone's pretty fucked up. So we'll just. Uh, We'll just we'll just take it from here. You know, Russia was messed up. Europe was messed up. Japan was in shambles. You know, Germany was rebuilding all that stuff. It was all we were the only clear world power You know, at that time. So having that global reserve currency means that we could not only create money for ourselves, but for the whole world. And everyone wanted their money in relation to our dollars. or They wanted to hold our dollars in their vaults. And that's such an incredible power because we were writing blank checks for the whole world, just coming all over the whole world for like 50 years. And you just can't do that for too long without it without it eventually breaking. And I, I didn't realize 
before the the downside of having that global reserve currency, I didn't realize that that always comes with a price. And that that fr- from the research that Dalio has shown in here, it really hasn't ever come a point where the person with the global or the country with the global reserve currency actually was able to hold on to it. Usually, always um, you know implodes. But the interesting part is the implosion and the actual damage to the currency happens long before the currency itself falls off the map. So although we're we've kind of all, I mean, we are in the process of imploding right now. This is an implosion. It's just a slow, slow implosion. And it's, it might be many years, maybe a decade or more before the US dollar isn't really seen as the global reserve currency anymore. It could be two decades, but we're in that process right now. Yeah. I find it interesting too, that the average uh, lifespan of uh, like the great civilizations in history, you know, the Chinese dynasty, um, you know, the uh, Roman empire, they last on average 250 years <laughs> and we're at about uh, 245. I'm pretty sure right now. <laughs> so, you know, it's sneaking up on us. We got to figure, figure something out. Just gotta be prepared. A little scary. Yeah, for sure. You know, well, and, and, and you know, even with those empires, there's, they existed before and after, but their peak was in that 250 year peak mm. and where we've peaked. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering like what it's going to look like as everything changes. So with the tightening of the policies, you know, how, how long till everything just gets completely out of control? Is it going to be like Venezuela where, you know, the dollar becomes worthless overnight? Lots of questions. I mean, I um, yeah. just from like uh yeah, personal experience. Like I remember um, it was um, I spent a lot of time like growing up going to like the Philippines and and that's like a third world country. Right. And so uh, ever since I was like 12 years old, I would go there every like three years um, just to visit. And one, one thing that became like really, really clear was like the rich was really rich and the poor was like really poor. Um, and I think that that's um, a model that that oddly enough, we're kind of going to here in the United States. Um, and then about six years ago, I started traveling to um, China um, for work, like on an annual basis for like two, three weeks or so. And I remember um, when I was first out there in 2016, it was the first time that I was out there. Um, and I had like a, um, a, basically like a person that was escorting me throughout, throughout town and, and kind of just teaching me how to get around. Um, and, and just, yeah, just basically took care of me and, um, they did everything like on their phone, and this was like 2016, right? So we weren't like that hip on like things like cash app and Venmo, uh, and paying people through your phone, um, like we are today. But in 2016, like that wasn't really like a thing that where we like traded with each other. But in 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 China, it was like your your uh, to call your cab, to make a reservation, to pay your reservation, or to pay for your food, uh, to go to the grocery store. Everything was like connected to your WeChat, essentially, right? And um um and then to be able to see kind of like how the West has kind of caught up in that respect. But then also seeing the this this thing that's happening in the West where it's like, especially in the past two years, like the rich have only gotten richer and the poor have only gotten poorer. You know, this this book is one of those things um, that you kind of look at it and you're and he makes it sound like the oncoming of like the the China thing, let's say, for instance, um, um, as the next world power. I almost venture to say, like, with how quickly the digital 
attention to the digital universe and everything that is like shifting towards this like meta world. Like, I wonder if it's something that humans just aren't even paying attention or, I mean, we are paying attention to a certain amount, but like that there's even this, the, 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 the next thing is something that humanity hasn't even seen. Like, and that implosion is from our own creation, right? Like this digital, you know, I mean, I mean, that, that is like what Hollywood is, is, is kind of like beaming at over the past, you know, let's say decade with certain like AI type movies, but um, yes. Just some murmurings to share. <laughs> no, I, I think that's really relevant. And one of the questions that I've been asking myself, and I might've talked to you guys about this recently is like, when is enough enough? You know, when is enough enough? Does technology as, as a concept, as a philosophy, the philosophy of improving technology, you know, everything that we have here is a technology, you know, this, this drink flask is a technology, the, to create this book took technology, obviously the phone is a technology, but like, is there ever a point where, where a civilization will say, all right, well, we're pretty happy with the technology we've developed no more, <laughs> you know, or, 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 or do you think it's, it is um, in this thought experiment ever possible for human beings to look at what we've created and say, you know, if we go past this point, we could be endangering ourselves. Do you think that we're capable of having that discernment or do you think that we'll just innovate ourselves to death? There was a, I don't know, I don't know if anybody's ever seen the show. And I think it was from the show. It was uh, Black Mirror. Oh, of course. Oh, bring it on, baby. I think it was Black Mirror. There was an episode where this couple found like uh, cavemen living in their freezer. Like, I, I don't know if that it, was, it, I don't know. If, I didn't see that one. Was really? it by, or, or was it, uh, was it Love, Death and Robots? It might've been that one. I feel like Death and Robots. Uh, and they, they're like, what the hell? Like their entire freezer was just covered in ice. And they found like these tiny little, like, like ancient, like cavemen people just wandering around in the ice. So like, what do we do? I oh, just leave it there. So they close the freezer and they come back like the next day. And it's like the industrial revolution. Like they're, they're putting up skyscrapers <laughs> and, you know, they got these 1940s, like people working and, and they're like, what the hell? So then they close the freezer, they come back later. And the society is like hyper evolved. It's like yeah. super futuristic. They're kind of seeing civilization like just just speed warped, like just super fast. And at the very end, humanity just kind of evolves so much that it kind of just dissipates into nothing. Like they just go beyond the physical. Not that I'm saying we would do that, but it you know it, it kind of makes me think about that. Like we evolve, we advance too much that it's actually more harmful than it is uh helpful i i man i i think that you might be onto something there i mean i was listening to a lecture by alan watts a couple of days ago and he was like we always thought that if advanced humans and but this is a lecture he gave in the 70s by the way or maybe even the 60s yeah 60s so i think he died in the, in the maybe early 70s but he said we always thought that advanced humans would have really big brains because as we continue to evolve our brain matter evolves and humans have the biggest brains but the reality is uh, brains will be outsourced to external devices. And that's what this is. We've outsourced our brain. You know, brains will be not built inside, but outside. And I don't know about you, but this has certainly taken the place of a lot of the computation that I would have done, a lot of the remembering, a lot of the communication that I would have done. Um, you know, a lot of my day-to-day day -day brain power is outsourced to another device. Um, and I just wonder at what point do we... At what point do we realize that we're not going to be able to hack nature? You know, if anything, nature 
we'll just reclaim all of this. If we, you know, if we're like messing with our genetics or if we're like, you know, even Elon Musk is like doing Neuralink, you know, and, and I guess I hope it's successful. You know, I, I'm curious about it, but does anyone think it's a good idea to connect our brains to hyper fast computers? Like it seems, I know a lot of people sign up for it, but it just doesn't seem like it's <laughs> as long as there's hackers in the world, I don't think I want to do that. Right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and, 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 um, and Watt said on his, on his lecture, which by the way, this is in the sixties. He said, as soon as we outsource our brains, privacy is completely off the table. And we're already experiencing that. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, I don't know if I want to go on necessarily if we go too far into the meta, which sounds bad or defeatist, but I don't know, man, it doesn't, there's a point where I could see it being quite grim. Well, I mean, we're talking about like how now web 2.0, it's, it's all set. It's all a centralized system and Facebook is trying to become the leader in that. It's like, they've already had scandal after scandal about oh yeah privacy concerns and data leaks. Do we want to, uh, centralize the metaverse and give that power to a company we already don't trust or this is where i'm kind of interested to see where web3 goes is it going to be is the metaverse going to be completely decentralized decentralized or is it all all the power just going to go back to facebook and web3 is kind of like it is what it is (laughs) well i mean matt you're working in that space what do you think is there going to be a war between centralized and decentralized web3 will it will they grow together or apart what do you think i think that we like we have like a uh, I mean, like much of Web3 right now is pretty centralized to begin with. And I think that we have this scale where you kind of have like decentralized, like fully decentralized and then as decentralized as possible. And like all these new opportunities that are coming to Web3, it's kind of like you're just like moving the scale and deciding on which side that you're going to be on. Um, like, I mean, I, it's it's tough to say that like cr- people are switching to cryptocurrency because it's decentralized because I mean, a lot of it comes from a, a centralization background and you look at like a lot of the founders behind a lot of these in, in the first place or are, who are the on the executive boards, a lot of them come from the, the most centralized uh, you know, world uh, before they stepped into this place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, Bitcoin truly is decentralized because it, it's founderless essentially. The founder has gone supposedly, you know, wherever Satoshi is, God bless him, her, it, uh, and, and, but when there's a founder there, it truly, it can't truly be decentralized because someone's making decisions at the top, you know, to a certain extent, I think there's a decent amount of manipulation in these crypto markets too. It's just yeah. not always easy to, to read the play. You can't, you don't know what's really going on, but there is a fair amount of manipulation, I think. And, and, and we want a certain amount of centralization as well. I just don't want, I just want to have choices and I don't want interference. I don't want unnecessary fines. I, I want privacy, but it doesn't mean... There, there's a difference between having like being able to still have privacy and wanting to be fully decentralized. You know, I, you know, I was talking to this uh, on the podcast with Neil. It's like, I don't want to have to have decentralized food manufacturing. I want someone to do that for me. I don't want to make my own cheese. I don't want to sew my own clothes. You know, I want centralized systems to ship me that stuff. I like Amazon. I just don't want them to take my data and look at my emails and track me all over the place. Same thing with Facebook. What were you going to say, Neil? Uh, sorry, just you've heard of VeChain, right? Yeah, VeChain. Yep. 
Yeah. So they're trying to come in with decentralized supply chains. So that's something where, you know, we can start to see what you're talking about, where it's not decentralized, it's not centralized, but we have a platform that can allow these supply chains to uh, interact in a decentralized manner. So these things are still super experimental, right? VeChain has been around for a long time and it's, it's been a slow mover. Like it's, yeah. So, but these things are in, in the works and they have to mature for sure. It's, it's not ready yet. It's not ready at all, but I'm like, I think that that is a future where, you know, we're going to have some decentralization, but it's not going to be to the point where it's unusable. I think we just got to give it time to mature um, in the space. I mean, the entire crypto space, right? It's still so immature. So I'm hopeful that we are going to get to that point as long as we keep, you know, having these discussions, developing and reaching out to the people that uh, can front run these things. Because if, if it stays decentralized, right, like these things aren't going to get put to the forefront. We're not going to be able to get these things to everybody who needs right. it. Like, right, you guys, like many, like people here are having supply chain issues right now. Like, and I can see the application for it. It's just, it's not ready yet. So uh, yeah, just wanted to add that in. I, yeah, and I think I think decentralization is a word that we're throwing around a lot right now. And I think that oftentimes, sometimes decentralization is the right word. Oftentimes, the word might be privacy and less predatory practices is what we're really looking for. It's like what's what's the root of it? If it has, to, if the only way to get more privacy and less skimming off the top of everything that we do, all the you know, because everything that we do, all the data and the money that we're passing through the system is getting strained at multiple levels by multiple companies, you know, whether it's banks, uh, whether it's, you know, like corporations or whether it's the government, they're all taking a piece of that money and that data. And you're left with a lot less than they do with everything. So I think really what I'm asking for, what I'm asking for decentralization is just less to zero of that, you know? Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily uh, need to do my own, all my own banking if I trusted my bank, but since I don't trust my bank, I'd rather do it. You know, I would love to have a chase that would act correctly, you know, that wouldn't charge me, you know, fees for wiring money or wouldn't charge me for an overdraft fee or wouldn't, you know, hold on to my money if they thought that I owed it to the government or they wouldn't, uh, you know, they wouldn't lock my account or, I mean, there's all these things that the banks can do, but, you know, Overall, we want privacy and we want speed, we want security. Let's so let's let's bring this to a head. I'm going to look at a few more questions I have here. Okay, so let's let's go around and we'll just do a last little last little roundup. Um, what are you going to do as an individual to bring some of these observations that we've made today and that you'll continue to make as we read these books? What are some things you're going to do as an individual to help others to catch this new wave? What are you going to personally do? Yeah, I'll go. Um, yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like sharing with friends and family, um, you know, helping them understand like what's going on, because the average person, they don't, you know, explaining to them how, you know, they're with inflation, like, you know, they're losing, losing their purchasing power every year, explaining how big cycles and, you know, macroeconomics work, you know, in simple terms. And, you know, what it boils down to is like, you need to make changes in your investments to stay ahead of the trend and, you know, not be too late to the party and, and lose everything. So I'll put, I'll put who else wants to go. What are you going to tell someone? What are you going to do as an individual to do your part? Uh, I'll go, I guess next. I think right now, the biggest thing is for me, make myself basically immutable because what 
seems to be going on now is, you know, there's this niche uprising that we have. And if that collective consciousness reaches a certain threshold, I mean, you you can't stop the internet, baby, right? Like Joe Rogan. And so for me, uh, I think the biggest thing is becoming a creator because that's something that it's it can't be taken away once you're a creator and creating something with a bunch of like-minded people I, I really do feel that if that catches momentum you can't stop it so it, it i think for me it starts within how i can apply uh all these technologies to create something uh become a creator whether that's a developer or a designer or you know creating some type of ecosystem where we can all you know learn together i think for me i want to become an immutable creator is that a, is that a job title i'm just gonna make that up so you've yeah you've now claimed that it's not a major in college but it's one of one it will be one day lijay <laughs> how are you going to contribute to this the changes that are happening in, in do your part. Yeah, I mean, first step for me is just a ton of of listening and and continuing to just be a sponge to a lot of this uh, this information because we know what we know and you know I'm I'm also at a at a stage where I just feel uh, very spongy <laughs> um, as a as a just a, a new dad and just trying to figure out like these soft skills of like what type of human am I actually like raising here. And, and there's this, um, um, yeah, there's just so much information and I really love what like Neil was saying with the idea of like creating, cause even the way that I looked at creation, uh, was very kind of like older school and traditional, like, like we have like a brick and mortar, you know? And so there's this, there's this, uh, sense of like being a, a voice and maybe that is through content, maybe that is, or a part of that through um i've been really really enjoying the podcast and that wasn't something i really did a lot of uh listening to prior uh prior to this so even just digesting it and just being like wow this is i just i really like the medium you know and so i know that there's something that's brewing and it's stirring um and so even just being uh really attentive and listening not just to like all the information that is out there but like something that's really deep and crying out inside, if you will. And, and yeah, is there anything you want to share, Rachel? Hi guys. Sorry. I'm one hour late. No, that's good. <laughs> this is Rachel and Alora. So I, what are we sharing exactly? Uh, we're just sharing, you know, based on everything that we're learning, specifically, yeah. specifically talking about this book, what's one way that you're going to contribute and give back with what you're learning and what you know? Oh, well, mine, um, right off the bat, I just think about the business that I'm starting. And it's, I'm labeling it as a doula, but uh, really it's more about birth education. And I truly believe that peace on earth starts at birth. (laughs) And um, (laughs) so just educating women who um, are ready to have a baby and how they want to bring that baby into the world is going to impact that, that baby for the rest of their life. Um, strongly believe that. And I feel like everything that I'm going to learn here and that I already have learned here within this group, I just know that, that you guys are my people first off, like that I'm like finding my tribe and, um, I've been talking about it. Like, I don't know exactly how maybe the NFT space or the crypto space is going to directly relate to being a doula just yet. 
but I know that it will. And I'm really excited to be on that forefront of it because it's, yeah, it's not something that those two things like for the, the regular mind, people aren't being like, oh yeah, it's naturally just going to like go together. Cause I don't think it will, but, but I'm going to find a way. And this is Alora. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of what I'm delving into right now. But um, I know that there will be a deep connection uh, within what I learn here and, and the business that I'm starting. So that's really exciting. There's no way that it can't impact everything you're doing. You know, yeah. there's no way. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you. Um, let's go Nick and then we'll close out with Matt. Nick, how are you going to change the world? What are you going to do with the knowledge? Oh man. I think that probably one of the most important things that I've realized so far is to just lead by example, but from a place of love, because if you're approaching something from a fearful perspective or even anger, it doesn't get through to as many people, especially when you're trying to inform people of something. So I've tried to talk to a lot of people in my network, family about what's going on. And there's been a lot of denial. There's been a lot of stubbornness. And I understand that. I mean, it's a massive amount of information to take in on top of an already stressful society that we live in, most people are just trying to get through the day. They don't want to take in all this extra info, especially if they're not 100% certain if it's even going to happen or if it's even worth their time. I have a friend who I've shared a lot of ideas with who said, well, when it's in front of me, then I'll deal with it. And, oh, you know, I have to, <laughs> I have to respect that. But at the same time, that's that's going to be, you know, a hell of a demolition ball. It's coming through the house when it happens. So it's, I, I've gone through all the emotions, you know, fear, anger, sadness, love. And I've found that the way I've been able to influence the most people is from a higher conscious perspective by just realizing that everyone has a choice. Everyone's here and they have a choice on how they want to live and what they want to learn and what they want to do. And I've grown to respect that. And at the same time, protect your own energy because you can waste a lot of energy trying to influence someone or change someone's opinion who just isn't going to move in, in the quicksand at all. So I have a lot of family like that. But I think that uh, humor is great. Humor is a great way to do it. I think that sh I think sharing politically neutral perspectives or articles or any type of content that's politically neutral is a great way to get someone to look at something because I feel like politics is a, it's like a brick wall between two people. And so I try to avoid politics. I don't really play a part in it. And when someone else brings up something that's politically, a, a political subject, I'll steer away from that and go more towards something that's neutral. So those are just some ideas that, that I have, but I try to tell people about things that I'm doing, like diversification and just becoming the best that you can mentally and physically and trying to prepare yourself in the best way possible for changes. There's changes coming. I think it's undeniable. We just don't know when it's going to happen and what exactly it's going to consist of. I mean, I think that that was a beautiful, uh, a beautiful response that I share, you know, everything with, you know, I have the same sentiments. And one thing I've learned uh, is that people receive information um, at the right time for them. So you can be saying things in the exact right way, but unless they're going through a specific series of their own events, which trigger their own realizations, they won't even hear it. You know, um, I I've can't tell you how many times in my life I've experienced something like, you know, people 
either not understanding what I was doing or actively giving it resistance. And then years later saying, Hey, can you tell me more about X, Y, Z? And I'm just like, I just, I tried to talk to you about this three years ago. I told you about this three years ago, or, you know, people want not being ready to, to do the work, to understand the information, wanting you to just tell them everything. And they're like, okay, Neil, just tell me what crypto I should invest in. I'm like, I can't tell you that it's because, you know, it's not going to be right, you know? So also not wanting to do it because it's it's so much work. And and I think there's a general sense that we want to be fed our information and we want to just be held and propped up. And especially as things change, you know, the whole idea of sovereignty is like standing on your own. And it's very scary. You know, it's very scary to do that. Um, even, you know, I was having a conversation with my, with my mom uh, recently and, you know, I booked a tip, trip down to go to, to Florida and uh, to see her for, for, you know, Christmas. And we've been around each other already since this has since the whole pandemic has popped off, I have one shot. I don't have both. So I'm not fully vaccinated. She's had three shots and she's like, you know, I just don't know if it's going to be safe for me. And I don't, you're putting me in this crazy position. You know, I just want to see you, you know, you, you, now I feel like maybe I shouldn't, you shouldn't come. I'm just like, listen, you know, um, I totally understand, you know, I totally understand why you feel like that. And I, you know, it doesn't really make sense because we've already seen each other in person many times as I've been half vaccinated. So it doesn't really make sense, but I'll also share some, you know, as much as I can politically neutral things with you to show you that a lot of the the fear around this, there's manufacturing around the fear that's happening here. There's real and there's perceived, you know, perceived fear to be had here. So, but it's hard, you know, because we're in a political time. And so it's hard to find things that aren't politically charged. So I think you're absolutely right. I think like giving people the information that you have and coming from a position of love and then giving them the, the gift and then walking away, you know, same thing with, uh, with, with crypto. It's like, you know, just gently giving people the information and waiting for people to come to you to say, Hey, it seems like, you know, you're doing a little better. Like, you know, if you're in, if you're getting in shape, you don't automatically tell people, Hey, here, here's the diet I'm doing. Here's the workout I'm doing. Like you should try it. You just wait for them to come to you and say, Hey, it looks like you, you're losing some weight. Like, what are you doing? And then you give them a little bit and you don't say, Oh, great. I'm so glad you asked. And you pull out your charts. It's just like, you know, give them a little, a little nugget. And then they say, Oh, and you'll say, Oh, if you want to know more, just ask me and let it be like their idea. I mean, even with, with Sarah, Matt, we're coming around to you. Uh, but even with Sarah recently, she, so she manages a homeless shelter downtown, um, which it's in at night, downtown Portland is dangerous too. It's like really fucking dangerous, which is a whole different issue that we should talk about at a later time. It's getting really gritty out there. And she was telling me some of the stories that the residents were telling her about bad things are happening right in the area where she's working and she's managing the shelter from like graveyard shift, like 8 PM to 8 AM. And I was like, okay, can you at least please come start learning jujitsu with me? Like, please, please. You know, it, it will be very helpful. This will save your life potentially, you know, if you need it. And for years I've been saying, come on, babe, let's train. You'll love it. It's like the best thing ever. It's so good. You'll love it. You'll love it. I'm sorry. I put you in an arm bar that one time. It's not going to be like that. It's okay. You'll love it. You know, she's still mad. Five years ago, I put her in an arm bar and she's like, that hurt. I'm like, I'm sorry. It was an accident. You know, you're fine. Look, you're fine. It works. Right. But now, because her circumstances are changing, not because I'm pushing, but because her timeline is lined up, she's like, you know, maybe I'll go to class with you. I'm like, oh, great. There's a women's class on Tuesdays, seven o'clock. And she's like, great. Can't wait to go. No effort on my part. No push. The offer was there five years ago. And then you just wait for her life to line up or their life to line up. So anyway, I find that happens a lot with the people that we care about because we want them to be interested and invest in the things that we are interested in invested in. And we want the best for them. And we don't we don't want them to miss out on the things that are potentially happening that we see that are good, but you know, timing is a factor. So 
Nick, I'm with you, man. Um, Matt, how are you going to contribute to the world and give back with what you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, like I, I do like a lot of Nick's sentiments I'm uh, very aligned with. Well, I mean, a lot of what you guys I'm very aligned with in general, but I do believe that like, you know, you, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. Um, and they're ready to drink at their own time or they're ready to realize these things at their own time. But you look at like uh, cryptocurrency investors, maybe like 3% of people in the world actually own cryptocurrency, uh, less than a percent of people own an NFT. Uh, like you're educating yourself and you're in that early adopter phase. Like you're, you're an early innovator and just getting the right information and education puts you at such light years, uh, you know, ahead. Like I, I started getting involved in, in with like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and in like 2000, 2012, 2000, yeah, like 2012, it took until 2017 for like my, you know, my mom to even like listen to any rant that I had. It took until 2020, 2021 for like both my parents to be like, all right, well, well you were right. I mean, it's like been almost 10 years. So people get to that point at the time. But I mean, throughout the time, at no point did I, um, you know, I was negative in any light. I tried to explain and I think empathy is the biggest driving force and trying to put yourself in other people's shoes and the backgrounds that they've been through and what they've done and what they've felt and how they've worked for their money and how they've realized things in their lives and understand that like we can we can blaze forward as early innovators we can grab as much information as possible we can educate ourselves as as much as possible and we can give this information in a way that it's it's not the you know i told you so ever because that's that's never a good a good you know karmic relationship with i told you so it's the the empathy that i have that i learned this information i went out and did it and i'm just telling you to follow the same exact roadmap um, so I think being like trailblazers and moving forward in the phases yeah. that we're at uh, comes back to being able to provide information the right way that when they're eventually susceptible to absorbing that information, that they'll, they'll get there. Yeah. I, I, think I, I do have a client dinner though, so I got to hop off yeah, real quick. Go do it. Do it. Um, and see you later, Matt. And I think, yeah, set the example and come back for them, you know, set the example and come back for them. So uh, thank you guys for spending your, your evening with me. I really appreciate it. I hope that you got a lot out of this conversation. You know, we're, part of what we're doing here is digging into why, you know, all of this stuff is important. And, um, you know, I, I really enjoy being with you tonight. Anything else before we close out? No? Good does stuff. anyone have... Hmm? I said good stuff. Good stuff. Um, does anyone have any objections to me using this as an audio only podcast? Anybody? Any objections? Dan, Neil, Nick, Lee J, Rachel? No. Okay. We just made more content together. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Great idea. You, will, you will see this soon. Uh, much love guys. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Cool. Peace. Thank you. Later, guys. Cheers everybody. Bye-bye. that concludes today's episode of the new wave entrepreneur i hope you love listening to it as much as i enjoyed making it for you and it just goes to show that there's so much to take into account when we talk about what is changing in the world you know it's not just one thing it's not just that you know uh that that inflation is happening because uh because china is evil it's not just that um you know that the dollar is weakening you know because of one or two specific reasons it's that the entire world is changing and we're caught in the middle of it and it's an interesting generation to be alive, but I hope that you took 
uh, some important lessons from this discussion. And I hope that really more than anything, it, enc- it encouraged you to ask questions that maybe weren't even on your radar before, because really the questions are the place where you're going to find, um, you develop the best ways for looking at problems and solving them. It's not necessarily finding the answer, but it's creating the right questions in your mind that will lead you to those answers and understanding which questions are important to ask over time that I think will allow you to be successful in your life and from both a personal level and a macro level. So I hope that you enjoyed this podcast. And if you're not already, please make sure you go and you leave a comment and a review on the platform of your choice. It helps to get this podcast and this message out there. And if you haven't yet, Go ahead and go to newwaveentrepreneur.com, sign up for my Substack, become a premium member and get access to all these podcasts I'm dropping, which never make it to our big channels like Spotify and iTunes. we got premium private stuff. We're doing a merch drop for premium members. We have a Discord channel just for the community. Uh, I'm dropping courses behind the premium paywall. So hopefully you guys will get on there and see all the stuff we're dropping for you. That's all I got for you today. Um, much love. And in, in the near future, I'm going to be putting up a little feature on uh, dowaveentrepreneur.com, which will allow you to drop voice notes for me. And those voice notes um, will allow you to ask questions that I can answer here on the air. So look forward to that. And that's all I got for you today. Talk to you soon. The water is warm and the tide is rising. So let's surf this wave.